When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, I'm Dr. Caroline Leaf, and welcome to my podcast, Cleaning Up the Mental Mess. In today's podcast, I have a wonderful, frank and open discussion with the actor and comedian, Josh Peck. He's also a podcaster, social media star, and he's held lead act roles in iconic television shows on every network, including Drake and Josh on Nickelodeon, Turner and Hooch, the series on Disney, and How I Met Your Father on Hulu. We have a, a wonderful conversation around how he got through all the struggles of his life, from growing up in a poor home and single parent, not knowing his father, battling with a very, very low a global self-worth and how he overcame this and even as a, as a famous actor how that still didn't satisfy everything how he sunk into into being, being depressed and addicted to alcohol and drugs and none of that satisfied him until he actually made some decisions about his life and we just talk about those decisions and what he's doing with his life now one of my favorite parts was when I spoke about this particular comment where he says in his book I was definitely medicating something deep within so we dive into what was that deep within that he was medicating and how did he get through that? But just before we begin, I want to remind you that if you want to listen to my podcast ad-free with bonus content, then subscribe to my Patreon account. The link and details will be in the show notes. And as always, this podcast is for educational purposes and is not medical advice. If you need medical advice, please contact the appropriate medical professional. And now, on to today's podcast. Josh Peck, I'm so excited to talk to you. So my, my adult children are also very excited to talk me that I'm talking to you because they watched you when they were kids. They watched Drake and Josh. And you've just been amazing. Your career's been amazing. But you know what I love most about you is the authenticity in this book. You're a brilliant actor. I mean, you're just fantastic and a great comedian. But this is just like so beautiful, the way you've taken your life and the things that you say, some really fantastic things that you say in this book that I believe are going to help so many people today. So thank you so much for coming on this podcast to share your story. Oh, I'm so pleased to be here. I love being near doctors, PhDs, MDs, chiropractors even. I just like knowing that if anything happens to me, I'm near someone who can intervene. Oh, I love that. That's so great. Well, you you motivate us to see another side of life, which is, and you know, you, you provide the entertainment that we so badly need for our brain to rest. So thank you for doing that too. Josh, you've just released a great book, Happy People Are Annoying. Love the title. My producer and I had a good laugh and said, that's the first question I'm going to ask you. And then we turned to the back and we laughed even more. Winner, most likely not to be made the best, to make the bestseller list, but I'm sure it will because you said that. Most stupidest, winner of the most stupidest face, winner of the best author of this book, winner, not sure this is, this is for us, winner who has asked for this. It's hilarious. So just your, you know, in two minutes, you two seconds, you got our attention. And so thank you. And tell us why happy people are annoying and why you wrote this book. Well, I think I, I, I always assumed happy people was a result of being either born into wealth or being born attractive or just sort of like being a natural athlete or something physically impressive. I, I just assumed that happiness was sort of like this Byzantine, Byzantine place that was reserved for folks that were not like me. 
I assume that people received like a manual for life and I just didn't get it. Like this, that, you know, God didn't know my mailing address when I was born and I just missed out. And so everything hurt more. I thought more, felt more. And, and basically was sort of this like sensitive mess from as far back as I can remember. And basically writing this book was about all the ways in which I had to face life on life's terms to define what happiness was for me. And it was in all the ways that I could never have expected it to be, but, but the result was, was that of, of what I heard happiness was like, which was contentment and feeling like I'd, I'd um, earned my place in this world. I love that. And the part where happy people are annoying, give us that, that little explanation. Why did you choose that title? Well, it just, because it's like how, the same way you'd say that someone, you know, growing up who got everything they wanted were annoying. Okay, I get it, yeah. Yeah, it just was this idea of like, they hadn't earned happiness, it was just instilled. It was chemically, they just had the right chemicals at the right time, and mine were And they got that book that you're talking about, that you know, they, yeah, they, got the that, they got that manual. I also want that manual. <laughs> the, let's be honest. They just have an excessive amount of serotonin and dopamine. I mean, this is the podcast to talk about it. And I it wish just, I wish it was that simple, Josh. <laughs> <laughs> it must be. I can't, I can't believe it'd be any other way. Uh, well, you've shown it is. You've actually, with your life story, you've actually shown that is. And, and the reason I wanted to ask that question and really dive in is because we really live in an era of the happiness industry where mm. people are giving you, you know, these books written on happiness and how to be happy as though it is this formulaic thing, this manual, this externalized Byzantian thing that you've that you described so accurately. And it's, I think it's made people feel worse because it's like, let's be real, life is so challenging. And, you know, mm. happiness is not this external, you know, it, it, all the things you've described. It's something that it's something different, you know, and it's something that is a product of something else, which I believe you discovered through your life's journey. Because now you're married, father of, a, of your, uh, your father now, of a son, and you know you've come a long journey, and you've been incredibly successful in your career as well. But it didn't start off like that. Yeah, I think uh, wouldn't you agree too that like this idea of this pursuit of happiness has only been sort of it, it it's only been sort of a, a pleasure that's that we've been able to seek for the last hundred plus years, right? Like our ancestors in the eighteen hundreds and whatnot, like. They had to worry about saying a lie. But the renaissance of psychology and this idea of like finding our place in the world is only because we're not worried about freezing to death. Some people, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah, no, you're true, but it's changed because our, our, the norms of, of just being alive have, or the, the, the daily lifestyles change quite dramatically. So it is almost an extra kind of benefit. But I think it's got a lot more to do with an internal sense of peace and meaning from as opposed to just those external things. And that's what I'm seeing from your book as well, reading through your book, that you're definitely looking for the deeper things in life. I think so. I mean, I've always tried to put the cart before the horse and find happiness and, and, and to be completed by something outside of me, you know, whether it was prestige or romance or finance and, and then inevitably in like drugs and alcohol and food and like none, none of this filled up that hole in the soul. It was only by doing the inner work that I found any semblance of peace and comfort. And you're in that place now, and this is where you are in a place to actually share this with so many young people today battling and also in the, in, in the acting industry. So can we now go back to the beginning and let's talk about you growing up with a single mom and things like your, and, and I'm going to trigger you with a statement that I found 
a good place to start and, and fascinating. You say on page 20, you're talking about the fact that you battled with, with weight and eating and so on. But you said a statement here that really jumped out at me. You said, I didn't know it at the time, obviously, but I was definitely medicating something deep within. Mm. And that was very, and I, when I read through, I saw how you unpacked that deep within through the story of your life and relate so much to what you're saying now about the happiness shifted from an external to an internal process. So could you tell us why you said that statement and what was happening in your life at that point? I think throughout my entire life, I just, I could never have known what I knew, what I know now. And I wasn't equipped. I didn't have the tools. You know, I was doing the best I could with what I had at that time. And, and, and sometimes the best you can do is just staying alive and, you know, trying to not push your experience on other people, you know, letting the, your circumstance allow you to lash out at other people or become violent or, or just emotionally sabotaging yourself emotionally or, or your connections with other people. Like it takes a lot to just be able to sort of keep it interior. And, and sometimes the way in which we do that is with these things like food and drugs and alcohol. And, and it's hard to judge it at that age because I, again, I wasn't equipped. I didn't have the tools that I have now. So I, I had no awareness of what I was doing then. I just knew that I was perpetually uncomfortable, that my disease rested in my dis-ease. And I was looking for ways in which to sort of quiet my mind and my hyperanalysis and to just feel okay with the world. And so for those of the, those that don't know your story, which I'm sure people do, but they don't know, you were really battling as a child with weight and you had all kinds of people telling, saying, you, you make a comment somewhere that for every every discussion that was had in front of you, there were two behind your back. You know, people weren't telling you what was going on. You were just getting told, hearing all these things that had to be done. You talk about the relationship with your mom and food and how you were in, immersed in that environment and how that you didn't, as you say, know the tools you know now. So tell us a little more about, you know, just that experience and and what you were going through at that time. Yeah, I, I, you know, I grew up with a single mom, only child, never knew my dad. And I come from a family of big people. So food was always sort of like the destination. If we were going to the movies, it was popcorn. If it was, you know, a a Jewish holiday, it was brisket. And, And if we were just hanging out, it was ordering in Chinese. And so I knew that like food was sort of like this wonderfully celebratory thing, but the byproduct was that, you know, I was overweight as a kid. My mom has dealt with, with food issues through a lot of her life. And so it was this, you know, this, this blessing and a curse. It was used for celebration, but it also in right in the same moment brought about a lot of problems and and issues. And, you know, at that time in the nineties, like it wasn't normal. Like there was no, there was no thought of like, how, how should we word this to a child so that we're not scarring them in an effort to make them healthier? You know, how can Mm. we, you know, how can we phrase this? Like, I love the idea of like a compliment sandwich when, you know, when someone asks for your feedback, it like behooves you to start with something nice and positive and then slip in a bit of constructive criticism and end it with something positive. Yeah, I so, like that too. Yeah. So like, cause we all like, you know, it ever, you know, it can be so woundy, yeah. especially when, when you know that the people are right. I mean, I knew at that age that like, 
most of my friends were not the size that I was, but I just wasn't equipped to deal with it. And I think people didn't feel that need to censor themselves the way they do now. They, I certainly had more than a few relatives who were very clearly like, why are you so fat? Not knowing how damaging that was and how you didn't, yeah, it's like that's to the core of who you are. And also the whole languaging around beastly being a disease, which is not really that accurate scientifically. And the whole thing really? of blaming the person, yeah, blaming the person. And, you know, there's, 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 there's all kinds of factors, you know, different body weight, sizes, et cetera, lifestyles, context. There's so many factors to bring to play. You know, that that's but that wasn't, as you quite rightly said, in the 90s, even up until very recently, it's been a very... Like if you, what's wrong with you if you're fat? So there's a lot of judgment on you as a person. And from what I read in your book there, there was a lot of that happening where you was almost being moralized. You were being judged for who you were and that kind of thing because of what you looked like, which is terrible. I I was lucky that like my number one person, my mom was always like, had this very healthy outlook on it, which was you'll do it when you're ready. I love that. You've always been handsome to me. <laughs> oh, I love that. But may I ask, like, because obviously, like, I've struggled with, with drugs and alcohol. Like, so uh, obesity and then, and or is addiction not a disease in, considered a disease in the medical community? There's two schools of thought. And the one is that it's a disease. But if you look at the actual research and the people that are really, like, in the, in the field and, and the, the work that I do, I see addiction as, a, as basically a symptom or a warning signal of an underlying issue. And you describe mm-hmm. that. The way you describe it in, in the book is exactly how I see it and how a large body of research, which is becoming, and scientists and doctors are becoming much more in, in line with the, this thinking, that, that addiction is not this thing that catches you and that you have no control over. It's coming from, and this is not to blame the person, but it's coming from the context and the environment that we live in that has affected us. And mm. therefore, it, it that that codes into our into our brain because about ninety four percent of the day is driven by what's unconsciously inside of us from our environment, and you know everything that's going on. You, you grew up with your mom battling, and you grew up with you know the single parent trying to do her best, and then she had this relationship with food. So this was not her fault, not your fault. This was the environment that you grew up in and was coded in. And then that that gap, not knowing your dad, and all these things that you describe in your book, uh, that gap that was that you were trying to fill, which you talk about with the drugs and the alcohol, you've described that exactly right. So, food, drugs, alcohol, sex, whatever it is that that we become addicted to, exercise, you know, orthorexia, and under eating, or obsession with food, all these things are, are basically patterns trying to um, uh, trying to hide an underlying issue, and that's why I like that statement: something deep within. Mm. And so the addiction is is the way of numbing and getting you know they, you know there's something there you don't quite know what it is or you do and you can't deal with it or you don't know what to do with it or it's hard so it's it, the addiction is trying to fill a hole that is deep within that's missing and that's wrong and when you work out like you did through your story when you did the whole transition you found the deep within you know, this mm. is how I read your story you found the deep within and therefore the addictions went away and you were able to manage all those situations more effectively and landed up on this side where you are now, where now your wisdom can reach out and, and your story can reach out and touch people's lives. So yes, to answer your question, I don't see it as a disease and the science doesn't really back it up being a disease. And what do you think, because like in recovery, we have these phrases like from, you know, Penn State to the state pen or from the park bench to Park Avenue, right? Like you don't necessarily, like there are certainly people who have the antithesis of my upbringing, like a very classic family system and maybe no one directly that has any addiction issues. And 
by all, I know families without their dysfunction, but by all, you know, accounts of quasi normal upbringing, and yet they can still fall into addiction. There are so many stresses that can impact our mental well-being as we go about our day, but our skincare shouldn't be one of those things. Indeed, we all want clean skincare products to help us look and feel confident without compromising our health. The problem is that a lot of people are using skincare products that they think are clean, but the products they are using are negatively impacting their health without them knowing it. And we all know how frustrating it can be to find the right skincare products, especially when we're constantly bombarded with information that is often misleading. This is why I love Primally Pure. They are a company that truly values your health and gets you results with their line of non-toxic skincare products made with ingredients you don't have to Google. In addition to offering an incredible line of products, my favorites are their wonderfully soothing spirulina face mask and their refreshing everyday spray, which I love using as a toner. Primally Pure takes the guesswork out of creating skincare routine with the easy-to-use skin quiz found on their website. Primally Pure offers a happiness guarantee and they will give you your money back if you aren't satisfied, but I know you will be. Their products are truly transformative for the skin. And their blog is also full of information and knowledge to empower you in confidently making healthier decisions and becoming the most vibrant version of yourself. For an exclusive offer for my listeners, go to primallypure.com and get 10% off your order with the code Dr. Leaf. That's primallypure.com with the code Dr. Leaf. The link and details will be in the show notes. Everyone's vulnerable because every single person's experience is so unique. So you could be in that so-called quasi-normal or classic family, but within that, those parents are coming through with their issues. And you talk Ooh. about intergenerational issues in your book, and it's basically epigenetics in science. And this impacts us going back four generations and more. We, we, we've got that inside of us. So there's this nurturing, plus there's this genetic factor of what's, what's come through, not genetics in terms of, of us not being able to function, in terms of the patterns of thought patterns and attitudes and viewpoints. That actually goes through the sperm and the over to the next generations. So intergenerational stuff is very scientifically tracked through the science of epigenetics. And in a nurturing environment, it's activated. So it doesn't mean that you're going to get that. It means the vulnerability exists. And that can be activated by, you know, the, the environment that one's in. So you probably track back in your family history, like every family's got stuff. I mean, I've got stuff. My, anyone, everyone's got mental health issues. Everyone's battling in life. This is not something that's unique to, it's, that's unique to few people. It is part of being a human. You know, and, and our experiences basically sometimes they like accumulate and get really bad and we can land up as you as you did yourself with a severe addiction, trying to fill that hole, whatever. But we can come back again with the support of of others and learning how to manage our mind. And I talk about mind management. I mean your story is a classic case of a supporting family, a supporting mom and you digging deep inside and learning to manage the pain and find something and find more meaning. So yeah. So everyone's got their issues. Every family's got everyone. Anyone can you can get the best families. I, some of my patients have been in the so-called. You know, how could this is like the perfect family? You know, our matter. own family. It doesn't matter. It's really up to the unique individual and how they're experiencing life. And it's going to be so different for each person. We're only experts on our own experience. No, no one else's. Do you know? Have you heard of this? I'm sure you have. He's, a, I believe, he's a neuroscientist out of Columbia. And he's got a lab there. Dr. Carl, maybe. Conti, Dr. Paul Conti. I don't, I, I can actually hear. I, while we're talking, I'm going to look up his name because I want to. But to your point, he said something and, and that, that mimics 
what you're saying, which is that like he basically is a big proponent of legalization of all drugs. And what he says is in his research, he's found like if you are predisposed to becoming an addict, it's because, like you said, it's a symptom of anxiety, depression, like mental disorders. And basically he says those people will become addicts, whether it's legal or not. Exactly. Most people will try the drugs or have some semblance of a normal relationship with them and sort of move on. They won't become addicts. Yes. And and eighty and it's something like eighty six to ninety four percent of people will get out of addiction when they're ready to realize, hey, life, this is not what I want for my life. I need something else. It's not filling the hole, which is what you did. You realize right. it's not that. I keep coming back to that sentence. Definitely medicating something deep within. It's that insight you had, which we all have, is that deep within. So I know that research. I know what you're talking about. There was also massive projects done in Netherlands where they did legalize drugs, and they they had the best. They've had the best results when it comes to helping people find mm. the reason why they have the addiction. So addiction, anxiety, depression, all these things are actually symptoms of, there's a big cause behind them. So the work I do is to help people see those not as who you are, but how you're showing up because of the deep within. There's a because of, and we need to deconstruct and reconstruct, which is what you've done with your life. You've done a deconstruction and a reconstruction. You didn't right. even know all the science, but I can analyze you scientifically. You've done an incredible process of of doing this whole becoming aware and deconstructing, embracing, processing, and reconceptualizing your life, which is very impressive. Do you find that, like, thank you, and I, like, but I I guess I, and I know it's it's slightly become a a taboo phrase, unfortunately, at the time, over the last few years, but, like, but there's no vaccine either, right? Like, because I know that if I, if I stop doing my spiritual maintenance, if I stop doing the things that got it good, it's not like because I've done all this work that I'm now impervious to drugs and alcohol or all the negative effects of addiction. Like I can easily slide back in if I stop maintaining what I've built, right? Absolutely. So what you're talking about there, Josh, is you basically have learned to manage your mind. And Mm. your mind is this spiritual, spiritual soul, mind, think, feel, choose, real part of you that when we die goes out of us. So it's our ability. It's like the the ability to program the software into a computer. So it's the programming ability and the software. That's all the mind. And then the brain is the computer. So the brain's nothing without your mind. So what you've done is you've got all these, every experience has, was wired into your brain. There was the output of that, the deep emptiness within you and all the, the story that people are going to hear more about in a moment. But then what you basically did over time is you became aware of that. You embraced it. You processed and you reconceptualized, you change it. So you literally change the wiring in your mind, you being your mind, you, your mind, your mind is your you-ness, your aliveness, this ability to to change the structure of the brain. Brain can't do anything, body can't do anything without you, your mind being alive. So we that's the mind-brain-body interaction. So essentially what you've done over the years is you've rewired, but what happens, and I'll show you an, an image is this the issues that um, all the, the issues of growing up and feeling like you're not normal and all the stuff that you describe, that would have been toxic experiences of not being the in family and not having the manual, all the things that you started with. So here's mm. a toxic looking tree and this is this represents a thought and this is what thoughts look like in the brain. They look like trees. So that would be a toxic one and this would be a healthy one. And mm. so essentially what has happened is that you have – this was driving you to a certain point and this creates – there's something deep within that's not right. And so essentially you basically 
became aware and started making changes. So you started reconceptualizing and changing it into this. But this, look, notice I'm pulling it down and it eventually gets tiny. And this gets, and I'm going to use my hands here. And now you've got this new life. Can you see it's dominating? But that's still there. That mm -hmm. transition's been occurred because your story never is going to go away. It's what mm. happened to you. But what you've done is you've changed what's in you. And this structuring, this mind work into our brain then is how we show up. So the way we show up is coming from these thoughts. And the thoughts come from our experiences that we've processed into our brain. There's a whole bunch of non-conscious stuff that happens that we have no control over. And then we see that impact, which is what you did. And then you edit that code. And then that changes how you show up. And so you've done that. But as you quite rightly say, this had to be worked on constantly. We've got to constantly manage our mind all the time. And that's what you're doing. And that's what you've learned how to do. What I don't agree with in terms of the sort of um, AA model, they do such brilliant work and I'm not knocking them, but is saying once an addict, always an addict, that kind of thing. I don't agree with that because we, an addict, you can't be an addict, you have an addiction. It's a very different concept. So mm. we're addicted because of something. Addiction is a signal, as is depression, anxiety, the way we behave, our behaviors, withdrawal, overeating, undereating, all these, the behaviors, our perspective of life, like I'm not normal, you know, all the things you sort of talk about in your book, those collectively, the way our body feels, are signals telling us there's something deep within. And so right. once you've reconceptualized, you no longer are being driven by this. This has become weak and ineffective and it's just part of your story. And the more you work on the new way and the more you recognize that there's a transition that's been made, the better you, the, the, that's how you learn through life. So when the next, next struggle hits, the temptation for this to come back is always there, but this is so much bigger. So this will be a reminder of, I don't want to be like that. This is my new pattern of operating. But that takes daily work. And that's why I talk, this is a lifestyle. And this, this embracing, processing, reconceptualizing to do this conversion thing isn't an overnight process. I've shown in my research it takes cycles of 63 days to form a new habit, to form a new thought. People think mm. it's 21. It's cycles of 63. But you know, in your case, it wasn't one nine-week cycle. You didn't know, maybe know the numbers. It was multiple. It was years of work. So it's, it's an, And then it's years to stabilize. And then the next struggle comes along and you think, oh, I can draw on that thought or that pattern. But it's not that exact pattern you draw on. That just get, gets you to a level of resilience because you need a whole lot of new tools now for this new struggle because it's a unique in itself. And that's, honestly, I'm, just, I'm giving you the science behind your story. <laughs> Yeah, no, I love so, it. I, I so, love hearing it. So, so here you, so now, now you need to let's now add your story to the science so that people can know because they haven't read your book yet, and sure. they, some people do know your story. So let's let's transition. Do you want to ask anything about that before we transition? Because I want to transition into your story, and now we can no, link please. it to the science because yeah. my my audience know this. They they hear me teach this stuff all the time, but it's really cool to know the science behind it, isn't it? Just to hear the scientific explanations. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I like, you know, it's even when we talk about when for many of us, especially with addiction issues, it becomes like these natural primordial instincts that just run wild. Right. So it's need for for shelter and to procreate. But then it becomes an addiction to sex. So it's procreating with too many people or yeah. it's, I need shelter. So I need to just, you know, you talk about like mental, you know, just like mental health and the war with happiness. It's like this idea of, you know, I, I need to acquire so much security and so much shelter. And for someone like me, it's because I've always been waiting, 
you know, perpetually waiting for the other shoe to drop. This idea of like feeling undeserving of my life and that like, I know the storm is coming and I need to fortify, fortify. And, and, but I don't like to just think, oh, I was born defective, right? Like, no, I've got these natural instincts because there's still a part of my brain that's like slightly reptilian that is like just thinks that, you know, how in, on earth are we going to survive till tomorrow? But the reality is there's so much data to support that things are going to be okay. Yes, but, our natural but, resilience. Know, yeah. yeah. So it's, I like knowing the science behind things and that it's not just like, oh, I just got dealt this weird hand. Absolutely, that it, it, that you very much represent uh, what he, what it means to be human, and every story is right. unique. But I'm sure, as you shared the story, and as you share it more, you're going to get so many people saying, "Hey, I had similar experiences. Maybe not, they maybe not in acting or whatever, but they've had similar experiences where there's been addictions and stuff in their life." So, yeah, it's 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 a unique human story, and that thing of the shoe drop. When's the shoe going to drop? I actually did, had so many discussions about this recently. It's it's that eventually does start. That's kind of maybe your what you need in a certain way to keep you moving forward. And, it, and it's understandable because it's come from that place of lack. So there's mm. that protection. But as time goes on, you'll learn to cope with that. And I'm sure it's already changed. And it's it's coming from, you know, this, which is the, all the, the lack that you did have and how you didn't want your mom to be you know battling so much and how hard she worked to try and keep the food on the table and that kind of stuff. And you don't, sure. you're protecting against that. So there's... So, so that is like that. You kind of, oh, how can I enjoy this? Because now, you know, something's going to happen that's going to stop us. But we have a lot of natural resilience in us. And mm. it's we don't speak enough about this in the world, I don't believe, because we keep thinking, oh, well, only certain people have got those five factors for resilience. But it's not like that. Every human is actually wired for resilience. We're wired for survival. And we do get through stuff. And it's hard while you're going through it. But we we get through stuff in the in the most, and when we've got this people that are battling to get through, that's okay. It is a battle, and the more we support each other, the more we develop different levels of resilience for different things. But it's an ongoing developmental process, which comes to sure. your your statement that you keep having to manage this, doing the spiritual work, doing that work to constantly be there, and and every now and then you're reminded, hey, this negative thing's going to come, and and all this good is going to go. You know, when's the shoe going to drop? Kind of thinking is keeping you sort of on a level of high alert. But over time, that will also calm down and only be activated in certain situations. In fact, let me ask you the question, is it still such a dominant thinking pattern or is it now getting more under control? I think to your point, it's all about maintenance and it, it depends. You know, there's this great, I'll censor it slightly because I don't know if you, you allow cursing on the podcast, but, you, you know. know go go I'll, ahead, I'll, do whatever, I, that's fine. So, you know, we I, have it be some, if people have a problem, it's coming in the right context. So it's not whatever you need to do to tell the story. I'll just tell, uh, it's just, a, it's really a joke, but there's this old saying of like, if you, if you meet more than, than two, you can believe this. If you meet more than two assholes in one day, maybe you're the asshole. <laughs> and, <laughs> and I noticed that, you know, and thank God. And that's, that, that is even the result of, of work. And, and is that I'm, I'm aware, right? Like I hate this idea of like, well, awareness is the first step because obviously it's a first step, but like, a lot of people are aware that they're drinking their life away, exactly. but it doesn't matter. If you don't take action, it, exactly. it's useless. Key. But, so good. But the idea of like awareness that before I got sober, before I, I started, you know, working uh, on my recovery, I was not aware of these bad habits, these bad patterns, and I was constantly perpetuating in my life. So I can be aware 
of like, you're being short with that guy or you're rolling your eyes at your wife or everyone, everything is everything. Everyone is saying today is stupid. So maybe you're stupid. <laughs> like, you know, That's called I, self-regulating. Yeah. Those triggers that I was not aware of early on. But if I start seeing that I'm really ornery and uncomfortable, like, so then I just reverse engineered and I go like, okay, well, let's look like, have you, you know, have you been, you know, doing stuff for other people or are you utterly self-centered in this moment? Like, have you been working on the things within your control, which is, you know, spiritual readings, 12 step, you know, and on a physical level, just like working out to get like your natural sort of hormones and, and all those good feeling chemicals firing, like, and I can literally, and, and there's always something missing there. It's like, there's always something that I've let go or I'm like trying to control the world where I can realize like, well, this was simple. Like the, the cause is right here. I love that. That's incredibly insightful and brilliant. And what you've been doing, Josh, on a scientific level is you've trained yourself to self-regulate. And we see from neuroscience that we can actually be conscious of our way we're functioning every 10 seconds. And it's literally what you're doing is you're operating in what I call the multiple perspective advantage, where you're literally observing yourself and you're catching yourself in a certain pattern as you've described. And then you are, you know, reverse engineering and finding and looking at the reasons why you're in that state. And then you're adjusting. So you're embracing processing and reconceptualizing. And that's really incredible. That's what we need to be doing as humans and what we can do. We, but it's, it's a skill. You've got to develop it. You've got to train yourself to, to activate that kind of self-regulatory thinking, which activates that resilience. Yeah, I love, I listened to Jerry Seinfeld and he was like, you're, your brain is an ox and you literally need to like strap the cart to the ox every morning and get that thing to plow because like it has too much energy. He's like, I don't know. He's like, can oxes live in the wild? He's like, he's (laughs) like, I feel like they have to be put to work. And yeah, like my brain, when I wake up in the morning is needs to be exhausted by like doing things for other people, esteemable acts to build self-esteem And then just also physically so that I don't have so much energy to worry about me. Oh, I love that. So in other words, what you're doing is you're describing mind. You've just described what mind is, which is considered the elusive question in science. But you've just described mind because you wake up and realize that your brain with all of its wiring automated, uh, all the automatic patterns um, in your brain are going to take you down some. And so, you know, you need to control your mind and self-regulate so that you can get. So that's, I mean, that's really the objective of the work I do is to help people to do that. So you're doing it. Well done. You're doing it. Thank like, you. it's amazing. <laughs> I love so it. tell us how you, tell us how you got to this point. So from, from recognizing that you were, we spoke about the, when you were a child and you were overweight and you had to do this whole thing. And, and I'm going to just quickly grab something here that you said about your mom, which I thought was phenomenal because you weren't sure. just honoring her. You were actually saying, Growing up, I desperately wanted to be different from my mother. Perhaps this isn't a new idea. You'd be hard-pressed to find any teen who doesn't seriously rebel against their genetic inheritance. So true. My mom was overweight. I was overweight. She was the artistic, non-conforming black sheep of almost any situation. And I was the unathletic, not masculine enough, weirdo actor kid who desperately wanted to fit in, blend in. I'd take whatever version of in was available. And because I only had her as a reference, my future of being just like her felt inescapable. I'd grow up to appreciate all those qualities about her later, but as a kid, they were less attractive. Mm. I found that very insightful. So tell us now your story from the this sort of point and then how you became an actor and how you learned from Ben Kingsley. And I mean, you've got an amazing story. So let's let's hear that. 
Well, yeah, I think, you know, my mom is this natural performer and, and has never had any qualms about being unique, like a one of one person. And I unfortunately was besieged at a young age by this idea of like, I, the last thing I want to be is unique. I, I, I want to be part of, I want to be typical. I would have traded every, every extraordinary experience I had in my life up into a certain point to, to have just been like a normal thin kid whose like biggest worry was spring break. And, you know, where they were going to go after the football game. And, and of course, like all these qualities, I could have never appreciated them in my mom at that age. But of course, I, I've grown to not only appreciate them, but hope to, to mimic them because she had a strength like a, that, I, that I would never know. And a lot of her, the reason why she would take over a room was because she was a woman in business in the 70s and 80s and having to like navigate like you know, really backwards thinking men who felt like, uh, mm -hmm. yeah. The, and felt like that, you know, their, their inappropriate advances were just like, like guy stuff. And so I, I give her all that credit, but yeah, I, I felt perpetually unique. I was overweight. I was the, the musical theater kid, but I started getting a lot of traction as an actor at 10, 11 years old. I started doing stand up comedy when I was, literally too young to even, you know, before I even had a bar mitzvah, I'm performing at 11 o'clock at night in, in New York City, having to be snuck in through the back door of a club so that I didn't lose, uh, the club didn't lose their liquor license. And, and that became my TV show, you know, uh, the Amanda show and Drake and Josh was a direct result of being this 14 year old kid with some talent and being pretty ambitious. But inevitably, it, it was all born out of like, I had this defense mechanism, which was comedy, which was in an effort to allow me some sort of social currency in the world. Because I assumed that when I walked into a room, I walked in at a disadvantage mm. and that people made a snap judgment about me. And, you know, there's like a, a as I'm sure, you know, like there's this term of, of faking good, this mm -hmm. idea. You talk like, about that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, like presenting an image on the outside that's so different than what's going on on the interior. But when you're overweight, you really can't do that. And so I had cultivated this defense mechanism, which turned into an asset and allowed me to be funny and then eventually get all these roles and whatnot. And, and, but I was also sort of introducing myself to the world on this TV show that was watched by millions of people in this body that I wasn't exactly comfortable in. So the byproduct of that was, was more discomfort that I was forced to face. So the comedy, as you said, was a coping mechanism, but you actually reconceptualized that and turned that into a skill and you and you accepted and it became a career. But it, deep down inside, you still felt uncomfortable in yourself. And there was a, still that little deep unmet need that was something still not. So even the external still wasn't satisfying that deep unmet need. So what happened next? I think, you know, I, I eventually when I, I wound up losing 100 pounds and I basically was the same head in a new body and I'd given up my medication, the thing that was working for me, which was numbing my feelings, which was, you know, eating in excess. So then when I found drugs and alcohol, it was like trading a Prius for a Ferrari. You know, it was so much more efficacious yeah. with much less calories. And, and I tried that for four years and then I even booked this gigantic movie that I did with Sir Ben Kingsley, my favorite actor. And it was, it was unbelievably well-received and people were going nuts. And, and, and at that moment, I think I felt my lowest because it validated my worst fear, which was you're bottomless and nothing from the outside world, be it food, drugs, alcohol, prestige, what have you, nothing's going to fill you up. 
And that was two weeks before I got sober and really took my first step on the path that I've been on for the last, you know, 15 years, which was, you know, doing the work from the inside. Okay, so let's park there for a moment. That's incredible. You talk about, you have a whole chapter about Ben Kingsley and about things that he said to you and the change that you talk Daddy Gundy. And you said, I'm a 20-year-old drug addict standing in Times Square with Ben Kingsley. Ben Kingsley is Gundy, literally a knight. Sir Ben Kingsley, he's my hero. I know for most people it's Tom Tom Brady or Michelle Obama, but I'm an acting nerd, remember. And I love that. And you go on to talk about the impact that he made. Just quickly, what was the film that you were making with him? It was a movie called The Wackness. And, That's right. Uh, it, I, yeah. I, I lost, I forgot for a moment. Sorry. Sure. No, it's, a, it's about a, a kid who loves hip hop in 1984 who trades marijuana for therapy from Ben Kingsley, who's this pot smoking, pill taking therapist with some good insight. So that was almost like a parallel of your life. So, yeah, very much so. So did that? So what happened there at that moment? Because here you've got everything. At this point, you've got the fame, you've got the money, you've got the everything externally, and you still have from that first line that I read out. There's still that deep internal need, unmet need inside of you. That very mm. first thing that I read out. So what happened there? You said just, you changed from there, and you said the next fifteen years. But the, there was something that you hit a point at that point in Times Square. I think it just, you know, it, it wasn't so much in Times Square was when when I got Sir Ben to give me some pretty great advice that I took throughout my life, which was to find your apostles and surround yourself with people that push you to be better and, and aren't willing and are willing to hurt your feelings in an effort to make you better. And I, I, I think that stuck with me. But really, it was when the movie was so well received and, and suddenly I had all this data to support that. You know, I had loss of weight, which I imagined would would be sort of this menacing force in my life. But I, I conquered that. And, you know, I, I was trying with drugs and alcohol, but it, it somehow like, I don't know, I say it in the book and it's probably not proper. It, it's probably not a proper neuroscientific term, but I always say no like problem. everything I've used to make me feel better. Eventually, like the synapses stop firing in my brain, like eventually, like it just its efficacy wears out. And so what first is like this great, beautiful new medication quickly, slowly, but surely. And, and I would almost dare to say quickly, you know, it, it's like when you take anything exogenously, like mm-hmm. you get this wave or like when people take change, they get this wave of serotonin and it feels so good. And they wonder why they're hungover for a week after. And it's like, well, you depleted yourself. Like yeah. it's all, you know, you, you took it all in one shot. And so. I just remember that I had all the data supported that everything outside of me was not making me feel good. And I woke up the morning after Quentin Tarantino was at the screening for the movie and all wow. these came in and they were fabulous. And I was like, Oh no, I've woke up with me again. Like I, I wanted to wake oh. up with Chris Hemsworth, like most people, <laughs> but oh. I've woke up with me yet again. And oh. And that's when I knew that I I had to make a change. I'm sure it will come as no surprise to you that to think well and manage your mental health, your brain needs proper nourishment. But many of us don't have the time to take multiple different products all day long for better brain and body health, more energy and optimized immune systems. This is why I love Athletic Greens. It has just what I need in one drink. Best of all, it doesn't taste like it's super healthy, honestly. Athletic Greens has a mild tropical taste that I actually look forward to each morning when I wake up. Even my husband, who can't stand things that taste too green, loves his Athletic Greens in the morning. 
With one delicious scoop of Athletic Greens, you're absorbing 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, whole food source, superfoods, probiotics, and adaptogens to help you start your day right. This special blend of ingredients supports your brain, your gut health, your nervous system, your immune system, your energy, recovery, focus, and aging. All the things. To make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com forward slash leaf. Again, that is athleticgreens.com forward slash leaf to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. The link and offer details will be in the show notes. I love what you said. It's brilliant and very moving. And it's a question that people ask me a lot in terms of what makes people change and Every time I think of someone, you know, like yourself or, or the story of my patients or people over the years that have told me their stories, it's definitely what you've said. There's, there's a, you get enough data. If I just summarize what you've said, because it's such a fantastic point, and please correct me if I'm saying it incorrectly, if I don't sure. represent what you've gone through, because it's huge. It's not like it just happened. You, there was all this life building to this point, and you'd got what you thought would make you happy, and yet there was still this data showing you you didn't want to be with yourself when you woke up the next morning. And it was at that point that you'd done everything that you thought was necessary and it was excellent. Everything you'd done would have been brilliant, but there was still that emptiness inside of you. So you then at that point said, I don't like this data. I don't like how I feel. I don't like this. I'm going to now do something different. So it's almost like you got to that. The point I'm making is that you got to a point where that is not where you want to be. You're going to have to change to fill this internal thing because the external shell is not going to last if this internal thing is not full, that's because you've got to have solid inside in order to support the outside kind of thing. Have yes. I explained that correctly? Did, did I understand you? Yes. Beautiful, beautifully said, doctor. Okay. Fantastic. <laughs> and then also the synapse thing, you did that really well because essentially when you do what you did, which is embrace and process and reconceptualize, that three-step sort of concept does actually wire out toxic issues in the brain. So you literally do burst these things. I've got slides actually that show these things. Literally, they're energy. There's energy supplying this. If you remove the energy, your computer will go flat if you don't charge it. So you literally remove the energy from that and it, it goes flat. It changes. The synapses do shift and you rebuild something different. And you take the energy because energy is never lost. It's transferred. Mm. So you transferred that energy. But as I, as I said in the beginning, your story, you're telling your story. So your story, what's happened to you never goes away, but you've changed what's in you. So you represent mm. that. You've actually done that transformation, which is, so you're quite correct in your neuroscience there. So there you go. All right. <laughs> well done. Okay. So then the next part of the story from that day now to where we are, because you tell, you say something else about at age 24, you saw a photo of your dad for the first time when you heard mm. that you know, that that he had died. Your mom told you from how, whichever. So do you want to talk about that? Yeah. So that you know, was I quite was, a pivotal um, moment in your life. I think, you know, in seeing so much of my life had been sort of influenced by my feelings towards my dad or my lack thereof. And this idea that I thought, oh, you're, you won't miss something you never had. But I really did have so much to work through with my dad's stuff. And I think it was it was less about him, the man, and just this idea of if 50% of your parental system is not there, how do you then take that out towards the world? And for me, it presented itself in like relationships where I would, I would basically, at, at, in the face of any sort of natural growing pains, in the face of any sort of natural challenge that is occurred in life, that if you walk through it, you're now equipped with new skills and new experience 
to better navigate the world, I would flee. I would run. I, I say in the book, like a, I was perpetuating the the bad behavior of my of a guy I'd never met, but he was a runner and I was a runner. You oh know, we gosh, both, wow, interesting. Epigenetics yeah, we, again. Mm-hmm. We turned our back on you mm. know the when on responsibility. So yeah, I you know it wasn't until I saw these pictures of my dad on on my siblings because he had a whole other family on their Facebook wall after he had passed away that I realized that. Oh, this guy was like, as far as I know, like he he was a guy who made a mistake, but it seems like he was the father that I wanted him to be for them. And he was scared. He was just scared and he made a mistake and I couldn't be the arbiter of the ultimate right. Wow, that's incredible what you've done, that that reconceptualizing there, that the pain you must have felt seeing the other family that he then fathered and yet you were there and he didn't father you and yet you didn't you you weren't the arbiter of what was right you didn't know what he was going you accepted that he was going through stuff and although you don't endorse his decision you haven't judged him so you had to make peace with it in other words you had to make peace but that must have been very difficult and for many years this was part of that missing need inside of you would you say I think so yeah no it was certainly and then it was finally the final sort of chapter of that was having my own son and yeah and I, realizing that we don't really we sometimes don't get the amends we deserve but we give mm-hmm. ourselves the amends by not perpetuating that toxic behavior and giving it to the next generation so mm-hmm. in being a good father to my son I was you know giving myself I was sort of making the amends that I'd always been looking to from my dad to me oh that's beautiful so you you healing yourself literally through your son. So the father, father-son relationship that you didn't have, you are now transforming into something healthy with your son, yeah. which is beautiful. That's incredible. Yeah, I, read, I read, was reading that in the book. I thought that was really nice. Those pages I had, I had marked off to ask you about as well. So that's incredible. So then you move on from now you're a parent and you're moving on. So tell us the rest of the story. There's lots more in here. Some not, well, some not nice things you used to say about yourself, for example, in Chapter 8. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Well, I think, you know, basically my story is out of like at a really young age being introduced to the public, having people marry themselves to an image of me that they first fell in love with, but being uncomfortable with that image and doing the work to face, you know, being overweight and then eventually drugs and alcohol. And then, you know, my identity being wrapped up in who I was as an actor and and, and having to hide in plain sight because there were moments, there were years I went without working or I was going through some career insecurity where I I really had to say, like, who am I now having faced all these things? Like, can I let go of this one final thing that I always thought was an asset, which was that I was Josh, the actor. And it didn't mean letting go of acting. It meant letting go of the image that I wanted to present of this guy who had no challenge, who was just excelling at every turn at all times. And it wasn't until I finally faced that that not only did it unlock this whole new level of operating to where I was able to work more than I'd ever had, but it unleveled a level of, or unlocked a level of happiness that I didn't know I, I could have access to. So, mm. you know, I allowed my life to be the result of good living. A good life is a result of good living, which I think is, is sort of the secret recipe. You know, living life on life's terms that I got the life, or my friend has a great saying like, you know, live in the world that is instead of the world you think you deserve. Oh, I love that. Live in the yeah. world that, say that again. Live in the world that is instead of the world you think you deserve. 
Uh, that's beautiful. In other words, that accepting what you have, but it's also you got to the point of I'm listening to you correctly and hearing you correctly, your global self-worth came back. So that hole filled. So you reached yeah. a point where the hole filled and you started becoming Josh as opposed to Josh the actor. And yes. then that was the next thing. It was you finally found Josh and now Josh can really be the actor. But that's where you're going now for the next few years. Is that yeah, the transition? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it just allowed me to to perform and to be myself without reservation or or just adding all this extra ornamentation to it that was really BS, you know, stripped away of the vanity or the prestige or what you thought of me. You know, what did I really want to do? do did I want to, if I, if I couldn't be recognized as an actor or I wasn't going to continue to have massive success, could I just do it because I liked it? And of course, when I realized that, like, yeah, I still love it the way I did when I was eight, you know, I wind up getting the biggest job of my life two weeks later because I wasn't walking into the audition room begging you to like me. I was doing it because it's the thing that I've done my whole life and one of the things that I love most. Oh, I love that. That's incredible. And I'm sure even at the stage, these things like, you know, as I said in that one chapter, some nice, not nice things I say about myself in another chapter, you have hit it, you title it. When existing is exhausting. So these are all things that you loud cry hard. Those are techniques, but you still, I'm sure those voices come back. So the, my question, those things that you describe in your book that you were going through as you were transitioning into from Josh, the actor to Josh, the Josh, mm-hmm. for want of a better way of saying it, and then being able to re almost like rebuild your, like repurpose yourself with a true global self-worth. I'm sure there are times when those Little things come back with a story that looks like this now, but sometimes they just, you know, pop, pop back. What do you do when you find yourself potentially in a self, you know, that inner voice criticizing you and saying you, you know, you are different in a negative sense instead of different in a beautiful sense? Because it sounds to me like you've accepted your uniqueness as something wonderful as opposed yeah. to not something bad. I have to act my way into right thinking. I can't think my way into right acting. And I have to like physically disrupt the thought pattern. I, I, you know, I I just think that if I can either do something physical so that I can literally trigger, you know, good feeling chemicals to, to overtake the neuroses or the obsessiveness. And then if I'm really being a spiritual giant and it's rare, if I can do something for someone else, do a good deed and don't get caught doing it. You know, if I can get out of self and be of service to someone else, I've always, I love the phrase of help your fellows boat to the other side and yours too will cross. Oh, that's and beautiful. Yeah. So I think it, it's really just about getting out, out of self because, you know, I, I'm taking care of, like my life is good today and, you know, my rent is paid and my family is healthy and I'm okay. So I really, if I really boil it down, all my worries are luxury problems, so they just don't reco- they don't require as much time as my mind would like to give them. Mm. And it's taken a journey to get you here. Yes, that's what you said. Yeah, so it's not an overnight thing. So you encourage people that just to keep going and keep pursuing. Josh, this has been amazing. I could talk to you all day. It's just oh, I love chatting with you. You're such you're so smart. It's just so I, I love what you do. It's great. I love the way you explain things for a for a layman like me. So thank you. Oh, it's my pleasure. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. And what would you, what pills of wisdom would you, if I had to say like, you know, sum it up, what pill of wisdom would you like to leave our audience with? Because I know they've loved this interview. The bad times are here to teach us and the good times are here to remind us what we're fighting for. 
I love that. That's amazing. And where can people get hold of your book and when where get find out more about you? I mean, it's uh, easy. They can just Google you. It's a stupid question because they can just Google <laughs> you and get the book wherever books are sold. But, you know, just if there any any particular point place you'd like to point them to. Yeah, all the typical places to buy the book, Barnes & Noble, Amazon, Diesel Bookstores. And then on Instagram, I'm at Shua Peck. It's like Joshua without the J-O. And yeah, and, and my podcast, Male Models. Male Models. I love it. Wonderful. <laughs> I mean, well, you I- can tell, right? <laughs> exactly. Of course. <laughs> I love it. I love it. That's wonderful. Well, thank you so much for your time. And I'd love to have you back on the show again sometime to chat I'd some love more. Because these, yeah, these are really amazing conversations. It was a great conversation. I really enjoyed it. Thank you so much. Thank you. I hope you found today's podcast interesting and helpful. If you want more tips and help with managing anxiety, depression, and mental health, be sure to visit my website at drleaf.com and to sign up for my weekly newsletter where I also include a schedule of my speaking events and so much more. And follow me on social media. I'm on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Just look for Dr. Caroline Leaf. Also, I love seeing all your posts on social media about this podcast. I love seeing what resonates with you and what you've learned. So be sure to continue posting and tagging me and letting me know what you think and how these tips worked out for you. And don't forget, leave a review and keep spreading the word about this podcast. Thank you for joining me today. I really hope you learned something new and helpful. Till then, I'm Dr. Caroline Leaf. This podcast represents the opinions of myself and my guests. The content here should not be taken as medical advice. The content here is for educational and informational purposes only. Please consult your healthcare professional for any individual medical questions you may have. While we make every effort to ensure that the information we are sharing is accurate, we welcome any comments, suggestions or corrections of errors.